0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Grounds of Creation. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 23rd, 2017. With the withdrawal of the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement last month, the epistle this week challenges the church to renew its care for creation. Where is the Church on these complicated questions? What does our Christian story contribute to the discussion? In Romans chapter 8, Paul moves from the personal to the global. Last week, he contrasted individual life in the flesh versus in the spirit. This week, he widens his lens to consider what he calls the whole creation, Romans 8.22. And in that passage in Romans 8, the whole creation struggles with anxious longing, subjection to futility, slavery to corruption, and the groans of childbirth. In Alaska, Entire islands are vanishing because of the melting permafrost and perennial sea ice. The tiny village island of Kivallina, just two square miles of land, situated 130 miles above the Arctic Circle, is populated, populated by an Eskimo tribe. Their ancient way of life is threatened because water is overtaking the land. By some estimates, coastal erosion and rising sea levels mean that Kibbalina will be completely submerged by the year 2025. And already there are federal, state, and local studies about the alternatives for compulsory relocation. The costs are projected at a hundred million dollars. Or again, some of the 33 tiny islands of the central Pacific nation of Kiribati are already completely submerged under rising sea levels. On other islands, the farmland and drinking water have been poisoned by seawater. In the next 25 years, 40 to 50 island nations will totally disappear. The Sahel Desert of North Central Africa is home to 100 million people, but droughts, famine, and violence have already displaced 3 million people. Here in the continental United States, Professor Hal Wanlis of the University of Miami says that, quote, I cannot envision southeastern Florida having many people at the end of the century. In an article called Miami is Flooding, he explains the consequences of climate change for one of our biggest cities. One of the many consequences of climate change is the forced relocation of millions of people. By the year 2050, writes Rebecca Hirsch in her new book, Climate Migrants, 25 million people will become involuntary migrants due to climate changes. Their homes and lands will be uninhabitable. These involuntary migrations raise all sorts of questions about national security, cost-sharing, resettlement programs, and so on. In New Zealand in 2014, a family from the island nation of Tuvalu was granted asylum as climate refugees. And the hardest-hit peoples are often the poorest, who in many instances have contributed the least to climate change. I recently appreciated reading the book by Pope Francis called Laudato Si, on care for our common home. This second encyclical by Francis takes its title from the Canticle of the Creatures by his namesake, Francis of Assisi, who wrote, Laudato Si, mi signore, Praise to you, my Lord, through our sister, Mother Earth, who sustains and governs us, and who produces various fruit with colored flowers and herbs. Well, our sister now cries out to us, says Francis, because of the violence we have done to her in our irresponsible use and abuse of the goods with which God has endowed her. By now the list is long and well known. Climate change, depletion of non-renewable resources, the loss of biodiversity and a growing gap between the minority rich, who are addicted to compulsive consumerism, and the poor, who cannot possibly consume like we do, even if it was possible. Our current situation, then, cannot be universalized or sustained. We've succumbed to what Francis calls the modern myth of unlimited material progress. To the alluring power of the technocratic paradigm, the numbing of conscience, and an economic model that maximizes profits without any greater end in view. By now we ought to know that technological progress and economic growth do not guarantee human welfare. What we need most is a change in our own selves. That begins, says Pope Francis, with realizing that humanity is one people living in a common home. It can't be emphasized enough, he says, how everything is interconnected. We can no longer make choices or policies that defend the interests of only a few countries, or even the few within a single country. We need to strengthen the conviction that we are one single human family. The earth is our collective good. Indeed, he says, this sense of fraternity excludes nothing and no one. Pope Francis addresses his encyclical to all people of goodwill, but he has special counsel for Christians. What we need is what he calls an ecological conversion, whereby the effects of our encounter with Jesus Christ become evident in our relationship with the world around us. Living our vocation to be protectors of God's handiwork is essential to a life of virtue, he says. It is not an optional or a secondary aspect of our Christian experience. For one inspiring story, consider the movie from the little African country of Burkina Faso. It's called The Man Who Stopped the Desert. Yakuba Sabadago is an illiterate farmer in the West African country of Burkina Faso. He's done more to reverse the ravages of drought and desertification than all the money and expertise of Western aid and agencies. So says the Dutch scientist Chris Rijs, who has helped Sabadago for 25 years. His simple methods have turned 50 acres of harsh desert into lush forests. First, he digs zi-holes. These are pits that are bigger and deeper than normal, and fills them with manure. The holes help capture the rain. Next, simple lines of stones on the hard-baked land slow down the rain runoff and help it to soak into the ground. These simple methods have turned the desert into forests. Salvadago has faced opposition from land chiefs because he's going against traditional practices and also from the government's plan for urban expansion. Still, his techniques have impacted the social, cultural, economic, and environmental aspects of his community. And as a consequence, they now enjoy food sovereignty, even in years of little rain. For further reflection on climate change and the related issues, I encourage you to go to our website and this lectionary essay, and you'll find about a dozen books that I have reviewed on the subject for Journey with Jesus. For movies, for books this week, I review a novel called My Name is Lucy Barton. The author is Elizabeth Strout, Thorndike, Maine, Centerpoint, Large Print, 2016. This book is 175 pages. Lucy Barton is the main protagonist and first-person narrator of her story about growing up in an impoverished and dysfunctional family in the tiny rural town of Um Omgosh, Illinois, and then moving to New York City. After complications from an appendectomy, Lucy is confined to a hospital for nine weeks, during which time her mother visits her for five days and it's the first time she had ever been on a plane. In fact, they had not spoken to each other for years. It's an occasion for small-town gossip, reminiscence, reconnection, and, for Lucy, deep introspection about where she came from, how it formed her, and the person she has become. When her husband joked that she quote-unquote came from nothing, which was true in an economic sense, she reflects that, quote, no one comes from nothing. The archaeology of family history is a delicate and complicated task. Memory plays tricks on you. People can parse a shared experience in different ways. All human love is imperfect, Lucy observes. We can never know another person truly or fully. She works hard to be ruthlessly honest about her past and present lives, itself a difficult task. But in the end, she was always compassionate, never judgmental. It's okay, she says, that her mother cannot tell Lucy that she loves her. Sharing memories with her mother brings Lucy both pain and joy. Elizabeth Strout's earlier book, Olive Kitteridge, won the 2009 Pulitzer Prize and sold over a million copies. Lucy Barton's family story continues in Strout's newest novel, published in 2017, called Anything is Possible, when Lucy returns to Omgosh after a 17-year absence. For a brief overview of Strout's life and work, See an article by Arielle Levy, A Long Homecoming, in The New Yorker, May the 1st, 2017. Once again, the author, Elizabeth Strout, her 2016 novel, My Name is Lucy Barton. In keeping with our environmental theme of creation this week, I've reviewed a film called The Fish on My Plate, 2017. In this 84-minute documentary by PBS Frontline, the best-selling author and lifelong fisherman, Paul Greenberg, eats only fish every day for a year. He wants to understand the relationship of fish to a healthy environment and a healthy body, and so he stopped eating what he calls land food meat. Paul Greenberg is a trustworthy guide, having written the book Four Fish, The Future of the Last Wild Food, 2010, and later American Catch, The Fight for Our Local Seafood, 2014. He's very well aware of the hype and partisanship on this divisive subject. Everyone has their own point of view, and everyone has their job to do. But this much is clear. There was clearly, there was clearly much larger fish biomass not too long ago in many places, like crabs in the Chesapeake Bay or sardines in Cannery Row in Monterey, California. Greenberg interviews conservationists, industry experts, government officials, fishery workers in Peru, aquafarmers in Norway and Alaska, fish conventioners in Boston, regulators, entrepreneurs, eco-warriors, marine biologists, and on it goes. There are no easy answers here, just a lot of complex questions. For at least one source of practical advice, you might see what's called the Seafood Watch Program of the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Once again, a 2017 PBS frontline documentary film, The Fish on My Plate. And finally, some creation poetry by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Hopkins lived from 1844 to 1889. This poem is called God's Grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this nature is never spent, there lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world breathes with warm breast, and with, ah, bright wings. Gerard Manley Hopkins, God's Grandeur. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, July 23rd, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.